faith, worship, obedience, favor, grace, provision, pride, stubbornness, judgment. From faithfulness to infidelity. From blessings to justice. Rudderless man falling and failing. Timeless God correcting and redeeming. An aimless generation repeating a cycle of rebellion and repentance. An unchanging God always giving his best, providing restoration. Judges and Kings. Hey, don't you love a great underdog story? Like, I love great underdog stories. Like, one of my favorite cartoons when I was a kid was Underdog, literally. Like, I, I loved it. I, I love the story of Winston Churchill, who grew up a sickly child. He was born two months premature. He uh, dealt with a lot of different various elements, and he also was, uh, had a problem speaking. He had a lisp, a real strong lisp. He, he would stutter, and throughout his life as a, ch- a child and as a teenager, he was relentlessly bullied, a lot of it because he was unable to speak clearly. And so when he was seven years old, his mom and dad sent him off to a boarding school he did not want to go to. He got there, he didn't do well <clears throat> scholastically, he didn't do well with kids, bullying was at an all-time high for him. He said it happened every day, he was relentlessly bullied. He uh, became rebellious and started getting in trouble at school. Uh, his grades were terrible. And after two years, they had to move him to another school. And his grades weren't a lot better. They were a little bit better there. He was still being bullied. Uh, but he made it through school. But when it was time to finish high school, so to speak, uh, his teachers recommended that he not go to university because they didn't feel like he was university material. So his father got him into a military school. And he did not want to go. He never wanted to go any of the schools. He did not want to go, but he, he got through that process and then uh, ended up in the military having to take the test for the third time. Even just to get into the basic uh, army, he was having a hard time getting in uh, because his test scores weren't good. His math scores were really low. Finally, the third time, he made just a good enough score to get into the military where he did quite well and eventually found himself in Parliament and then, of course, the Prime Minister of Great Britain in arguably its most difficult time in history. Uh, Matter of fact, he would be the resounding voice of clarity during World War II when England was constantly being bombed. And when people would talk of giving up, he would uh, go on the radio and, and talk about how they were going to be victorious. And he made those famous that those, said those famous words multiple times, we will never, 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 never surrender. And many uh, give credit to Winston Churchill of Great Britain not ever surrendering and following through and standing strong, even as the relentless bully Adolf Hitler and the Nazi regime continued to bomb, continued to pulverize the nation Uh, He continued to speak forth with confidence and clarity. 
All, and he would later say those years of constant bullying made him strong enough to stand up against anyone and to speak clearly how that time was redeemed. Let me tell you, I wanted to tell that one because I know I'm not supposed to always tell a sports story, but I, you know, I love sports. And Incidentally, I think I've said this before. I would have played professional football and professional baseball if I simply would have been good enough. So it was just, it was strictly a lack of talent that kept me, kept me out. So I just want to make that clear. Uh, so <clears throat> I love the story of Fred Jackson. You might not have ever heard of Fred Jackson uh, he played for Buffalo for a little while, but here's Fred's story. So Fred, as a matter of fact, I bought my first house uh, right on the border of Arlington, South Bedford, and uh, some of my students, I was a student minister then, they went to high school at Lamar. So sometimes I'd go to Lamar High School football games, and it was a, it was a powerhouse during the 90s, and a coach named uh, Eddie Peach, it just, they did a tremendous job, always sending all these uh, D1 athletes out. One year, they had 15 or 16 guys inside with Division I schools, and then uh, they were just a great program. Well, there were a couple of junior highs that fed into uh, Lamar High School, and uh, this guy named Fred Jackson played for one, but he was on the B team in junior high. So he was on the B team. He got to high school, uh, and uh, his coach there at the junior high, Nichols Junior High, was always encouraging Fred. He had a great attitude. He said, Fred, you've got some potential. Just take, you know, just play, go as far as you can. So he got to high school, and he was always a backup. He finally made varsity his junior year, and he was the fourth string running back. He got to his senior year, and he's the third string running back. There's two guys ahead of him who will end up going to Division I schools, and he's the third string running back. And uh, the, the week before this, the first game, um, one of those guys gets hurt, uh, Justin Fossett, who would later, later play in California. Um, he gets hurt, and so Fred thinks this is his chance. Uh, but Coach Eddie Peach, great coach, decided, you know what, we'll just go to a one-back set. So now, now he's still second string style. He's still not starting. Matter of fact, he would go through his entire high school career and never started a single game. Never did he run out on the field to start a game in his whole career in high school except when he was on the B team in junior high, okay? But his junior high coach comes to him, and and their family didn't have a lot of money. Matter of fact, their house is now a parking lot for Dallas Cowboys. It got completely tore down. But they didn't have a lot of money. They didn't have much. And so his coach still had a heart for him and said, look, I want to get you into college, and I want you to come and do a tryout at my college where I I grew up, uh, where I went to school and played. And later, matter of fact, he even coached there. He goes, it's a small Division III school called Coe College in Iowa. He goes, you've probably never heard of it. He goes, no, sir, I've never heard of it. His parents never heard of it. Nobody ever heard of it unless you live in Iowa. And so he said, you know, I'll ask your parents' permission if I can take you and your brother up there, and we'll just see if, you know, can get a little tryout, and and maybe they can get you some aid. So he took him up there. He knew some people. They got him some aid, and he played football, non-scholarship football, Division III, the smallest level. And he played there, and he did really well. He got out. He wanted to keep playing, but, of course, nobody drafted him. Uh, because, by the way, when he graduated from high school, he was about a, between 155 and 160 pounds, and he was 5'8". That's the size I was when I graduated from high school. <laughs> and I got nothing. But anyway, <laughs> nevertheless, <clears throat> he gets out, <clears throat> and he starts playing in arena ball, which is basically kind of like human, human foosball. He, he plays arena ball for a couple years and realizes that's going nowhere. He can't make any money. He's making $150 a game, $150 a week from them. And um, he realized that he's going to have to do something. So he talks to his junior high coach. And junior high coach said, let me see if I can get you a tryout. One of the guys who used to be the head coach at Coe is now a head coach in the NFL. He calls him. He goes, 
He goes, man, I don't have time for this. He goes, but if he's really, you think he's really got a chance, there's that European league. I'll make a call, and maybe he can get on with one of the European teams. So he does that, plays in the European league, the USFL, for about three years. That folds. He comes back, talks to his junior high coach again, and the junior high coach gets him a, a, a tryout with Marv Levy, who's now the head coach of the Buffalo Bills. He said, well, send him over here, let us time him, and then we'll see. And bring him over. He has a really good time running. And they goes through all the training camp, and they go, okay, you can be on our practice squad, which is, again, it's basically the human dubby, dummy practice squad where the, where the real players are smacking you upside the head and running through, and you're, you're, you're getting pulverized. But, hey, at least I'm doing this. He goes through a year of that, and the next year he makes the team. And after that, after about three years, and a matter of fact, he didn't make the team until he's like 27 years old, which is really old for a, for a football player getting started. Usually they're 21, 22, 23. He's 27. And finally, after a couple of years, he's starting. And matter of fact, in 2011, he uh, has 1,000 yards returning as a football return and 1,000 yards rushing. No one had ever done that in the NFL before. And then he goes on uh, at the season after that for the first six weeks. He's leading the NFL in rushing. This is a guy who was on the B team in junior high. I wasn't even on the B team in junior high. He was on the B team in junior high, and he never started a down in high school. Think about how easy it had been to give up, and now he's leading the NFL. He plays till his 2015, matter of fact, till 2016, and he beat out Marshawn Lynch. Matter of fact, on the Buffalo Bills, he beat him out for the starting job. And uh, when he was in 2016, he was the old, oldest active NFL running back in football before he retired. I say all that because that's a great story of an underdog who nobody believed in. Nobody thought he could do it. And that's a picture of Gideon. He didn't even believe in himself, much less is anybody else believing in him until God says the word. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Judges chapter 6 as we see the story of Gideon beginning with verse 1. How a zero goes to being a hero. And we're going to see five different phases of how Gideon's faith process worked. First of all, you're going to see a challenge. Then you're going to see a decision. Then you're going to see opposition. Then you're going to see shedding. And then you're going to see impact. Genesis, or excuse me, Judges chapter 1. 6, beginning with verse 1, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them over into the Midian seven years. Now this, last week we talked about it, it's the cycle, and they keep going through this vicious cycle. They'll fall away, they're being blessed by God, they'll fall away, they become disobedient, begin to worship other gods, uh, then they come under the oppression and rule uh, of a neighboring nation, then they cry out, and then God delivers them. And they keep going through this process again. They keep doing evil again. And the Lord's given them into the hands of the Midianites. And the hand of the Midian empow- overpowered Israel because of Midian. The people of Israel made for themselves dens that are in mountains and the caves and strongholds. In other words, they're hiding out on their own property. Uh, because the Midianites are coming after them, and they're taking their children away, and they're taking what they own. For wherever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Malachites and the people of the east would come up against him. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel, no sheep, ox, or donkeys. So what's happening here? Well, God made a covenant with Israel and said, if you will worship me and me alone, if you will be faithful, then I will bless you. I will protect you. 
But if you choose not to obey this covenant, if you're entering in this covenant and you break this covenant, then I will remove my hand of protection and your enemies will come upon you like locusts. Matter of fact, you go back and read uh, Leviticus 26. It literally says, and if you are disobedient, then they will come, your enemies will come and they will consume your crops. It's, it's amazing. This is part of the covenant. It's been prophesied. If you do this, then this will happen. So that's what's happening to them. And they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land. They wouldn't leave anything for them, animal or food. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come like locusts in numbers. <laughs> it's also interesting that the book of uh, Deuteronomy talks about how if they disobey the covenant, if they break the covenant, then the locusts will come in. That's not an accidental word, by the way, in the living word of God. Like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so they laid waste to the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. And when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and out of the house of bondage. God sends a prophet. They have been disobedient. They have chased foreign gods. And by the way, a lot of that, you go, why do they keep following these idols? Why do they keep making this? Well, that religion was really fun for a lot of men. And I won't go into detail, but you got to, to do whatever the desires of your flesh were, actually was and call it worship. And so there were temple prostitutes. There were all kinds of things. There, were, there was lots of drinking, lots of things going. It was basically a big party that they called worship. And that Baal, the fertility god, and Asherah's counterpart uh, were all blessing them. And that was all in the name of religion or worship. So it was easy for them to fall into it because it was the natural inclination of their flesh. But God had said, I want you to be faithful. And because they are not, they're experiencing this oppression. So God sends a prophet. God doesn't first send a deliverer. If you'll remember, Deborah was a judge and a prophet. But he sends a prophet to say, I want you to understand. I want you to remember why you are where you are and how you got there. That's what his people needed to hear. That's what we need to hear today as, as people of God. And he says, because you've been unfaithful to God. And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you, will, you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree in Orpha, which belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, who is the son, who, while his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. So what's happening here? Well, um, uh, scholars debate over this. Some think it was simply an angel that came and spoke on God's behalf. But many, myself included, uh, would say this is what we call a Christophany or theophany. What is it? It's Christ makes an appearance in, in a body. Uh, Christ makes an appearance through a human individual that looks like an angel in an angelic form, if you want to call it that. And so he comes and he speaks, and he speaks into Gideon at this point, whether he be an angel or uh, the Christophany. He speaks and, and he tells them, uh, here's what's going to happen, and here's what's going on. The angel of the Lord appeared to him, and he said, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. 
So he tells Gideon, hey, I know you're hiding right now, and you're worried about them even seeing uh, the shaft from the wheat that you're throwing up in the air. But you, my friend, O mighty man of valor, I am calling you. Now, what's interesting about that phrase, O mighty man of valor, that was a term, if you go back and read the Jewish rabbis, that was a term that was used for someone who would rise up and lead the people of that day. It was kind of a deliverance figure, a Messiah figure. This is exactly what the Roman, excuse me, the Jews were anticipating when Jesus came. Hey, he's going to rise up, he's going to gather an army, and he's going to lead us into to victory, and we're going to reclaim our land and be peaceful and prosperous. And so that term was used for that type of individual. And so he knows what it is. I'm calling you to lead the army of God. I'm calling you to lead your, lead your people in war. And Gideon said to him, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? Where, where are all the wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted saying, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? Well, Gideon, it, we'll see his father hadn't been teaching him a lot of scripture He has a sensitive heart to some degree, but he's got his facts wrong. He and his people are in the middle of of a broken covenant. And God is not doing anything because they've broken covenant with him. They have gone back on their agreement. And the Bible said, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hands of the Midianites. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of the Midians. Do not I send you. You know what he's telling him? Gideon, I just want you to go in the faith you have. I want you to believe me and I'll do all the rest. I want you to do practical faith. Oswald Chambers, if you've been here a while, you've heard me say this. He defines it in this manner. It's faith is doing everything you honestly and ethically can and trusting the rest to God. He's saying, Gideon, I want you to do what I tell you to and then trust me with the rest. So that's exactly what's occurring here. And so the Bible says, uh, and he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I'm just a little group in the tribe of Manasseh. I'm just a little clan. Our family's not very big. We don't have a lot of people. We're very small. We're like one of the smallest in the tribe of Manasseh. And I'm the least of my father's house. In other words, I'm, I'm the youngest kid. I'm, I'm the boy. That, I got older brothers. The oldest son's going to get everything. That's who you call, and particularly in that culture. That's the one who will take over the family inheritance and the family occupation. And I'm a nobody. I'm a zero. And the Lord's ahead to him, but I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that is you, it, you who speak with me, that this is indeed the Lord speaking to me. Please give me a sign. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you, my offering, literally. And he said, I will stay till you return. So the angel of the Lord tells him he'll stay. And he said, I will give you a sign. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. And the meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the tree and planted and presented them there. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. So here's the sign that Gideon has asked for, that you are the Lord. So he, 
He defines himself and makes it clear that he is the Lord. And we see uh, something like what is, will foreshadow what happens with Elisha uh, later on when uh, Elisha has his offering consumed by the Lord. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. So he has proven who he is. He's spoken to him. Gideon knows what he's supposed to do. And then we go on. And the Bible says, um, Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord, For now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. So it was the belief in that time that if you came face to face with God, you would die. But again, this is a Christophany or an angel sent by God to speak on his behalf. But the Lord said to him, peace be to you. You are fine. Shalom. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar to the Lord and called it the Lord is peace. So he knows his God. He recognizes God. And he builds an altar to him. To this day, it stands at Orpha. And belongs to the Abyssalites. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar, an altar to the Lord God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. So what's happening? So uh, Gideon recognizes this is truly God who is speaking to me. And he makes the decision. He has the challenge. He has the decision, okay, I'm going to follow you. And what does he ask him? He said, okay, here's the first thing I want you to do. I want you to go to your own property because on your property there is an idol of Baal who is the fertility god and of his counterpart, Asherah. And I want you to chop it down and I want you to take the seven-year-old bull. Some rabbis say that that was kind of a mascot of, of Baal. We're not certain. Uh, But I want you to take that bull, and I want you to take another bull, and I want you to make a sacrifice unto me after you chop it down. And so he's asking him to do a pretty big thing here. He continues on, and the Bible says, Then take the second bull and offer offer it as a burnt offering with wood of Asherah that you shall cut down. So cut down that Asherah tree, and then I want you to use it to make an offering for me, and you're going to sacrifice that bull on it. So Gideon took... Ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him because he was too afraid of his family and of the men of town to do it by day. So he did it by night. I get it. Uh, And when the men of town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down and the Asherah beside it was cut down and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. Well, now this this is just really tough. Now the problem is with Israel and with his father is not that they probably don't believe in Yahweh God at all, but now they have added to him. And since they're in this area... Uh, it was most of the cultures at that time believed that there were deities for each geographic location. This is the God for this area, and so we're going to have him too. And he's the fertility God, and he can make things really happen for us, and he'll help us grow. And plus, the Amorites, maybe they'll give us mercy. They'll give us uh, a little reprieve if we, they see their, our gods are built on our property right here. Maybe they'll look at this as kind of a sacred land and leave us alone. And so this community might have been thinking that. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done these things. Just remember, if you ever do something with 10 people, somebody's going to talk. That's way too many people right there, okay? And so that's what's happened to Gideon. And then the men of town said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. What? Here are these Jews who have been delivered from Egypt and they're saying 
bring this boy out, let's kill him. We heard he took down the pagan god poles, he took down Asher and Baal, and, and when the Midianites see this, we're doomed, and so let's bring him out, he's going to have to die. But Gideon made a pretty much a calculated guess. I guess he believed in his father, because his father said this, Joash said, said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? He's saying, look, can, can Baal not protect himself? Can he not take up for himself? And the Bible said, if he's a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbaal. That's not necessarily a good name. It's one that he would be identified as, hey, he's the guy that tore down the altar. And if something happens to us, we're going to all point to him if the Midianites crush us here in a little bit. But, he, but the main meant, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. Now all the Midianites and the Malachites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. And the Bible says, but the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet. The trumpet of war. And the Bezerites were called out to follow him. So the Holy Spirit comes upon him, just like he came down upon Deborah, just like he'll come down on Samson. He comes down and empowers him. And the Bible says, and he sent messengers through all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, the other tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali, and they went to meet them. Then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. And if there's dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on the ground, then I shall make that. I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. Here's the problem with this. Sometimes we hear this quote. I'm just going to put a fleece out. Here's the problem. Why is Gideon doing this? He already has acknowledged he knows it's God. He's already given him a sign. He already knows what he's supposed to do. What is he doing? He's trying to get out of it. <laughs> I'm going to do this. Okay, well, if I see the fourth car I see is a Maserati, uh, that means I get, I get to not go to work tomorrow or whatever it is. You know what I mean? Or if I go outside for five minutes and I don't see a shooting star um, then I guess, it's so, I guess it's okay for me to buy this new house or new car or whatever it is I want to do. We start sometimes looking for ways to get what we want. And we, and we start giving, oh, God, just give me a sign. If you don't want me to do then do this. And God in his infinite mercy and grace, recognizing that Gideon doesn't have a Bible, by the way. The Torah is still being spoken by oral tradition. He knows the story, but he's got a father who's not been a good role model. He's like bringing in these pagan idols and put them in the front yard. And so he's not had a good opportunity here. And so God, in his benevolence, honors this bad theology. Because that's the way the pagans would do. They would do divination in that way. Hey, if the gods want us to do this, then we'll put this out. Oh, that means go to war. Oh, that means look at the liver. That means, you know, whatever. And so God is, this is not what he's asked, and he's already given one test, and Gideon does it again. Why? Because he wants to get out of it. He knows who gave him the instructions. He knows what he's supposed to do. He just doesn't want to do it. He's scared. And I understand him being scared. And the Bible says, interestingly enough, uh, as our Gideon read earlier, he said, all right, call out the army. So he's got 32,000 people, and, um, yeah, or 30, whatever it was, 30, 32,000 people. He said, all right, tell all of them that don't really want to be here. If you've got something else going on, you've got beans cooking, whatever, if you want to go home, go. And the Bible says that 
uh, 22,000 of them left. Now you've only got 10,000. He goes, all right, we're still going to shed some more off here. I want Gideon, I want you to go down to the brook there, and, and uh, when they get down to drink water, if they don't do it in a defensive posture where they can see what's going on, then I want you to, uh, to get rid of them. And only 300 of them do that. And he shed it down to 300 at this point. Gideon knows the only way this will happen will be through God. I don't have the numbers. I don't have anything. This will have to be a God thing. And so that's exactly what happens. God receives the glory. Matter of fact, they even later on want to make Gideon the king. And he goes, it wasn't me. I'll tell you that. It wasn't me. And so what's happened here? Well, first of all, we see that there's a challenge. There's a problem that Gideon is facing. A challenge that his people are being oppressed, that they are afraid, that they have become synchronous, that they're involved in this pagan worship, and their people are dying, literally. And so what happens then? He's got a challenge. God comes to him and says, look, I want to give you an opportunity. Here's the deal. I want you to call up and raise an army. And he does a sign so that Gideon knows and he has the altar consumed and the, the, the meat that's there consumed. So Gideon has the message. He's been called a valiant warrior. You're the one I'm choosing to deliver. He's answered all of Gideon's questions. And so now he goes and he starts that process. He's made the decision to follow. And what happens? Opposition. People go, I know things are bad, but they could be worse. Let's, I, know, I know this is not the way it meant. This is not what our fathers and our grandfathers would have wished. But let's, let's don't do anything to rock the boat. And he has opposition as he makes that stance. And then from that opposition, God says, all right, it's time to go. And get your army together. He gets the army together. And he goes, I still don't have enough, but this is better than nothing. God says he's going to come. i got 32,000. And God has him shedding those off. You know that your body sheds over a million cells every day? Over a million. Matter of fact, closer to two million cells every day that just die off and your body sheds. Do you know that your whole body in 10 years is basically rejuvenated or basically is renewed? In other words, even your bones and your organs, they're all renewed in, within a 10-year process so that this isn't the same cells that you had 10 years ago, the same organs. They've all been regenerated because the body has shed those cells. And God makes Gideon go through a shedding process where he knows that it's God and God alone. And he's just called to be faithful, to do everything he honestly and ethically can and trust the rest to God. And then we see the impact, the impact that is made through Gideon's faithfulness to God. Maybe you're here today and in your life, you can identify that. And you go, man, there's a, there's a challenge in my life. Maybe it's spiritual, maybe it's physical, maybe it's something else. There's a, I, I have a challenge here. I have a decision to make. God, am I going to trust you and ask you to redeem this and ask you to work in and through my life to sustain me? God, I will trust you no matter what that means. And realizing there'll be op opposing voices in my head coming from the, from the evil one, there are opposing voices from people who will sometimes say, yeah, you don't have to do that. You don't have to stand for this. This doesn't have to be a conviction. Matter of fact, that makes people uncomfortable. Whatever it is that God has placed you in, whatever position, wherever, whatever he has given you to lead and to, uh, to accept the challenge before you, whether it's the gospel or anything else, and then recognize that he's going to have you shed some things. There's some things in your life that are going to be shed. There's some things that he's going to start to remove, and it's not always comfortable. Before the impact will come, the shedding always 
occurs. You know what? I think that's almost true for our church. Um, we came to a place where for our children and our students, there's no longer room for them. And we made the decision, we voted, that we're going to have an additional location. And we want to continue to make more and better followers of Christ. And we want to continue to reach out uh, to our neighbors in the community. And so with that comes opposition. That's just part of it. And with that comes shedding. And we have to shed some things. There's some things that we won't be doing next year. There's some things, ways that we will conserve money. And there's ways that uh, we will need our people to step up and do things that they've never done before. And that's part of the shedding process. Why? For the impact. To make more and better followers of Christ. To love God with all that we are. Now, in you, for you personally, as a believer in Christ Jesus, if you know Christ, what is God challenging you with today? What is the opposition saying? What is he shedding off your life that you're so desperately trying to hang on to? Because our ultimate goal is not to make a living, guys, but to make a difference for his glory. What about you? Father, thank you so much that while we were still sinners, you died for us, that Christ Jesus came and lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died. Lord, if there's someone here that doesn't know you today, I pray that today would be the day that they say, I recognize I can't do it in my own strength. God, I do everything I can, but I trust you with what I can't. I cannot forgive my sins. I cannot cleanse myself, Lord. So I ask you to do that, and I put my trust in Jesus who lived and died on my behalf, and I put my faith in you. God, for the challenges that, that are before me, Lord, give me your insight. Lord, let me quit throwing out fleeces and start praying and start seeking godly counsel rather than just little symbols or signs that will help me get what I think I want. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to walk by faith as we follow you and trust you. In the name of Jesus, we pray.